0: So, we're very excited to be uh, launching this new centre here tonight. The centre has its origin in a research project at Birkbeck I've had the pleasure to direct for the last three years, that is the uh, Reluctant Internationalist Research Group. And I hasten to add that the the reluctance in the title um, stems from, uh, refers to the attitude of our subjects of study. um, And this project will enter its fourth and final year uh, next year. This new centre aims to continue and, in a way, significantly broaden um, the work of the uh, research group. Um, It's an inclusive and interdisciplinary project to join forces with scholars interested in understanding the social, cultural, political, economic, intellectual, legal fabric of our world and its international architecture. So we're currently putting together uh, a programme of events and activities to start in the new academic year. Our website is currently in progress, and soon you'll see um, everything announced on that. In the meantime, you can find details about uh, the centre on the Reluctant Internationalist um, uh, website and various feeds. If you're interested in doing something with us, this is a great time to make things happen, so do get in touch. Um, We have a number of ideas and we'll in fact be contacting quite a few of you in the room um, with possible projects and collaborations. It gives me enormous pleasure to welcome our speaker tonight, Prof- Professor Holly Case. Professor Case is a historian of 19th and 20th century Europe with a special focus on East Central, Southeastern Europe. Uh, she's currently at Cornell, but in a, in a very exciting move is about to join Brown. She is, I think, the most versatile and most original historian I know. Um, She's able to read and speak a a hugely impressive uh, range of languages, number of languages. In fact, I pressed her early on uh, which central and southern European language was missing from her repertoire, and there doesn't seem to be any except for possibly Albanian. But uh, she speaks Turkish and and is currently learning Ottoman. Her work brings into focus the the relationships between foreign policy, (coughs) social policy, science, technical expertise, and, and culture literature. She completed her PhD in 2004 at Stanford with a dissertation, A City Between States, the Transylvanian city of Cluj, Koloshwa-Klausenburg in the spring of 1942, uh, which resulted in her prize-winning Between States, the Transylvanian question, and the European idea during the Second World War, which was published in 2009 by Stanford University Press. And since then, uh, Professor Case has published widely on the social and political history of uh, Central Europe, East Central Europe, including an essay volume on uh, Yugoslavia after the Balkan Wars and a special issue on the global impact of 1989. She also edits and writes a fantastic blog blog called East Central Europe Past and Present, which I can recommend to uh, any of you with an interest in that area. And she's currently working on several projects, including a history of the roles played by consuls and consulates in the international system and a history of questions. And on that last latter project I'm very glad to be handing over to Holly.
1: So I want to thank, um, first of all, the Birkbeck Department of History and also the uh, uh, the reluctant internationalists uh, and the willing ones who have <laughs> made the journey uh, here <laughs> to hear this talk. And I'm especially ex- uh, grateful to Jessica Renish for uh, making it possible for me to speak at this particular venue. The opening of this center is really exciting, um, and it's exciting for a lot of us, I think, around the, the world who are less reluctant in our internationalism. And I look forward to seeing its developments. I was reading through uh, the description of the project, and um, I don't know how uh, how planned this was, but my scheme for tonight is to hit on a number of themes that were raised in the project proposal, which are the search for intergovernmental agreements and conventions. These are Uh, topics that uh, the center hopes to explore, the practice of international assembly, the projection of national agendas across the globe, and the transfer of ideas, resources, or people across national boundaries. Without actually meaning to, I think I can hit all four, Um, but uh, this will be like the equivalent of a a triple sow cow if I can pull it off at the end. So um, I'm also uh, counting on you not necessarily remembering that list. (laughs) so that if I don't pull it off, uh, that uh, no harm will be done. Um, I'd like to start by explaining how it is I came to this project uh, on questions, and I call it uh, provisionally the age of questions. And the way I came to it is from World War II, uh, and um, I had been doing study of World War II, and uh, I was thinking about uh, the Transylvanian question and the Jewish question, And you've probably heard the phrase, the final solution. Um, And you probably also know that the final solution is the completion uh, or the beginning of a phrase, the final solution to the Jewish question. And I became intrigued by this formulation. Uh, Why the final solution? Why the (coughs) Jewish question? And in my first book, I explored Uh, the connection between the Transylvanian question, which was a geopolitical contest for territory between Hungary and Romania, and the Jewish question. And I discovered there was a pretty tight relationship between the two, and that this relationship was understood by people of the time. And so this project started with World War II, um, and I really wanted to understand, uh, and I initially titled it, Loaded Questions, because I knew it was going to end badly namely, the way that World War II unfolded with the final solution. And so I started working backwards from World War II to see where this question formulation came from, how much it encompassed, um, who was thinking in these terms, and what kinds of possibilities did it open up and shut down. And uh, after a while, World War II kind of became an afterthought as I became consumed by the 19th century origins of these questions. And so um, I think World War II is still uh, relevant, but one thing that this project has caused me to do is to think about World War II in a very different way. Uh, and having gone through the whole exercise of uh, running through 19th century history with a different set of eyes, with an eye on questions, I now see what happened during World War II quite differently. And so I'd like to give you, if I can, a glimpse of uh, by the end of um, how the century, of n- the 19th and 20th centuries look if you take this um, perspective. So there's really nothing new about questions. I mean, uh, if, you, if you Google them, you get a lot. <laughs> um, and if you are really sophisticated and you Google them in Google Books, you get still a lot. Um, and they go back really far. So the, the idea of a question, there are important questions that are posed by the scholastics, for example. Socrates um, had his question format. Um, And then the academies, the national academies of the 18th century, had their question competitions. um, And then there were philosophers in the 20th century who uh, worked in terms of questions. There was the catechism, which of course worked in terms of uh, questions to which uh, people knew the scriptural answers. So the question formulation is very, very old. Um, But in the 19th century, a different kind of question came into being in the late 18th, I should say, in early 19th centuries, And that's, I would short form this by calling it the X question, because if you substitute for X some other thing, the Jewish question, the Polish question, uh, the Balkan question, the Eastern question. So all of a sudden in the 19th century, uh, there were all of these X questions, if you will, these formulations, and the, um, they emerged uh, largely in the eighteen teens, Um, and they proliferated wildly in the 1820s and in the 1830s. And so there are a couple of things, uh, there are a lot of peculiarities about this formulation. Um, Of course, um, there are a lot of people uh, who have talked about them, a lot of people who have written about them. As a matter of fact, in the 19th century, if you were a prominent personality, it was almost impossible that you didn't uh, think about questions or write about them, so people like Malthus, or uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, or Giuseppe Mazzini, Karl von Clausewitz, Karl Marx, Karl Mai, Karl Krauss, um, all of the Karls, Otto von Bismarck, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Leopold von Ranke, Leo Tolstoy, Leon Trotsky, Rosa Luxemburg, Joseph Conrad, pretty much everyone who was anyone wrote on at least one, possibly even, a multitude of questions and so that already by 1893 someone like um, Leon Tolstoy wrote uh, that I constantly receive from all kinds of authors all kinds of pamphlets and frequently books one has definite definitely settled the social question another the political question another the Eastern question and so there was a huge pamphlet uh, literature that pervade these questions, and that trucked them all across the continent, that translated them into a variety of languages. And the trend continued, and such that each of us who has worked on any aspect, and not just of European history, but of any, really, history anywhere in the world, has probably come across at least one, if not several, of these questions, and uh, probably to such an extent that it's even become a bit annoying. Um, So, it's difficult, it was difficult for me anyway, to stifle a yawn whenever I came across this formulation, uh, because it was so ubiquitous. Um, And not because they failed to elicit an enthusiastic response, but because they elicited so much of of an enthusiastic response over such a long time. So, in Greek, for example, um, the phrase, uh, you've made an Eastern question out of it, Anatoliko ziti is uh, it means uh, that you've made a mountain out of a molehill. Um, <laughs> and uh, also and so we've made a lot of mountains out of the molehills of questions, but uh, to my astonishment, nobody's really wondered where the formulation came from in term in, in aggregate, and where it was headed, why it came into existence in the 19th century, and what it meant that it did come into existence. So um, today I'd like to explore this uh, question, if you will, from the standpoint of certain patterns that I've observed across what I would call the age of questions. And um, one, uh, we should start with etymology, uh, because philology is is the new history. And etymologically, if you look at the word question, it has two, meanings that are in tension with each other already from the start. And so in most of the languages um, in which this formulation occurs, and even in most languages from which they descend, the word question holds within it two seemingly disparate meanings. One is question as interrogative. So I ask a question, you give me an answer. The other is question as problem. And uh, this uh, form of question as problem slipped into the X question, such that, and many of you will recognize this from what you know about questions already, they do not demand answers, they beg solutions. Um, and so they are, they are sort of problems that slip under the title of questions, and uh, nevertheless they demand solutions. If we want an example of this, uh, we can look to this 1921 text called A Catechism of the Social Question that was even set up like a catechism, it was by two American priests, and it's on the social question they said, this is the first question in the text, question, what do we mean by the social question? Answer, a question denotes a problem or a difficulty which demands uh, a solution. This is a late example, but it's very clean, and that's why I offer it. Um, But you can see uh, from earlier examples as well that questions really were crafted as, as problems and understood as problems. Um, And insofar as they were problems, they were also sort of irritating from the start. So the irritative aspect of questions was with them from the beginning. So in a letter from 1854, the French political theorist Alexis de Tocqueville uh, compared engagement with the Eastern question to banging one's head against the wall, which is an English translation of the much more delicate French, which is apparently to hit yourself with a small bottle over the head this is clearly a cultural difference but both (laughs) are equally irritating i think we can agree Uh, and so uh, you can see this uh, sign of irritation also in a text by dostoevsky who in his diary of a writer from 1876 called the eastern question a piccola bestia that has produced a condition of general madness um, and Karl May, whom some of you may recognize, uh, who was the German author of many immensely popular uh, novels about American, America's western frontier without ever, ever having visited America's western frontier, um, in his travel memoir of, of 1882, From Baghdad to Istanbul, uh, he offers the following exchange. Uh, What do you make of the Eastern question? I think they should mark it, not with a question mark, but with an exclamation point. And uh, so you can see here that what he's getting at is that they're sort of false questions. They're not really questions at all. There's some kind of shrill (coughs) statement that's being uttered into the world. And if you look at the word querist, which also emerges as a common term, oftentimes applied to those who are posing questions, this word, querist is often synonymous with a troublemaker, someone who's adjectivally impertin- uh, impertinent, or insatiable, or troublesome, and so the very person who poses a question is something like uh, a troublemaker. So um, another matter I'd like to speak of briefly is their origins. So the earliest questions that I found that carry um, this formulation, so the very earliest are 18th century. Very briefly in the 1870s you have the American question uh, around uh, the American Revolution. Revolution. It disappears very quickly. The Jewish question gets a couple of mentions in the British Parliament in the 18th century, and then it's gone. Something like uh, another question, the Carnatic question, which was related to uh, British India, uh, also had a little flash in the 18th century, but was largely um, gone very quickly um, or was, was replaced by another name. But for the most part, when you start getting questions coming online in a serious way is in the first part of the 19th century the uh, early uh, the 18 knots and the 18 teens. And uh, some of the earliest ones I found were from here. Uh, and so uh, the most riveting of questions namely the corn question (laughs) paired with the second most riveting the bullion question uh, right here friends that's where it comes from (laughs) Um, and so in the 18 teens uh, the corn and bullion questions were all the rage and were being discussed quite hotly in advance of uh, their uh, deliberation in Parliament and um, subsequently uh, and part of this was related to uh, Britain's capacity or incapacity to finance its involvement in the Napoleonic Wars. So it's very much related to the international scene at the time. And uh, the discussions of the corn and bullion questions uh, resulted in uh, the so-called Coinage Act of 1916. And these set off a number of others. So the population questions started to be discussed around this time by Malthus. Um, and then there at the various treaty conferences around uh, the the sort of rundown of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, At the treaty conferences in Vienna and Verona, for example, you see mentions of the Polish question, the Turkish question, the Spanish question. And then in the 1830s, at sort of knock-on conferences about these same uh, difficulties, the Eastern question, then you get the Jewish question, and the social question is a pretty late-comer, late 1830s, early (coughs) 1840s, as near as I can detect. So um, it's tempting when talking about these to raise uh, the important question and say, OK, what are these questions really? What is the Jewish question? What is the Eastern question? And for any given moment, you can sort of offer something like uh, uh, an answer to that question. You can say that the Jewish question, well, it might be about Jewish emancipation. Uh, generally speaking uh, the Eastern question it might be about whether the Ottoman Empire has a right to exist but I also think that it's uh, a mistake to assume that these things can be neatly defined and I hate saying that um, because it sounds like a punt but one of the things uh, the, the points about uh, questions is that part of the form of uh, the publicistic form that discussion of questions took was Uh, And someone intervening on a question would frame it define it and then offer a solution And so the framing and definition always had to turn on something at least slightly If not completely different than what any other person had done hitherto for and so part of what questions were in the publicistic realm was an attempt to redefine the question so it was a constantly moving target and so speaking of A fixed definition almost doesn't do justice to the way they functioned, which was as a kind of rolling, constant, moving away from the last uh, option that was offered, or the assumed general option in terms of a definition. So that's one peculiar feature of them. Another thing that it's fair to ask is, why then? Why the 1810s? Why the 18-teens? And I think uh, there are a couple of good reasons for that. One has to do with just the burgeoning of print culture. Questions really need uh, the publicistic realm in order to proliferate, so uh, pamphlets, uh, uh, newspapers. Um, but they also they, need, uh, they needed to be international very quickly, uh, because a lot of them were about making appeals across national boundaries. And so there had to be the creation, which I think came with the Na- Napoleonic Wars, Of what I would call an international public sphere, where different uh, actors in different states were paying very close attention to what was going on in British Parliament and trying to influence the outcome there because they saw it as relevant for their own domestic purposes. Um, So for example, people in what was left of Poland uh, took a very close interest in what was happening in domestic politics in France and in Britain because they knew uh, that uh, they would have to influence People in these countries, in order to achieve their aims of national sovereignty, be that or um, uh, etc. And they weren't the only ones. There were a lot of actors around the world who, through the um, Napoleonic Wars, had become aware that there was an international public sphere and that it, it had to be engaged with in a very particular way. So I think that partially explains, at least in a very shorthand fashion, why then. Um, So I'd like to turn now to a few particularities of the age of questions as I see them. And one is their weird uh, or peculiar scientized um, uh, mode. So when you think of a question as a problem requiring a solution, that suggests a very mathematical understanding um, of uh, the issue. So um, also, it's very common during the, the age of questions for them to be discussed as uh, requiring the construction of a formula that produces uh, a single solution. So um, the mathematical assumption, and these are not always mathematicians making these assumptions, is that uh, for a kind of uh, mathematical problem, there can only be really one solution. And so the assumption that people are working working under is that there can only be really one solution for any of these given questions, at least early on. So, for example, you see the proliferation of the phrase, if you will, two plus two is four in the 19th century. And this was um, a kind of strong weapon in the arsenal of anyone entering the the question realm. Um, It's as obvious as two plus two is four, and this was used for social and geopolitical issues alike. And so much so that someone like Dostoevsky, in his 1864 notes uh, from the underground, uh, decried its pervasiveness. He said, twice, two's four, watches smugly, stands in the middle of your road with his arms akimbo, and spits. <laughs> uh, with a typical Dostoevsky flair. And so, so here's a man who's paying attention to what this formulation does, that it's tyrannical. And yet, Dostoevsky himself, in his own diary of a writer, Uh, was kind of swept away by the idea of of formulas and solutions. So uh, later he wrote quite ecstatically of the Eastern question in these terms. He wrote, with the final solution of the Eastern question, all other political strife in Europe will be terminated. The formula, the Eastern question, comprises perhaps unknowingly to itself all other political questions, perplexities, and prejudices of Europe. So you see here a couple of things. One is this formula and solution, this language that he's using. But there's something a bit more important in this passage, and that is that the Eastern question comes to be a kind of bundle of issues, that it packs a bunch of stuff into it. And this this kind of aggregation of uh, going concerns under the umbrella of questions is another feature uh, of the period. And so it's not only the case that questions were assumed to uh, encompass a lot of issues under the umbrella of a single question, but that oftentimes questions themselves were aggregated into bundles. And I'll talk about that more in just a second. So another feature of this is is that he actually uses um, the expression uh, final solution when he's talking about the Eastern question. And this is, you know, not when we expect to see it, but as a matter of fact, this, uh, this uh, phrase or this um, idiom is present uh, early uh, in the second half of the 19th century at least, and I found traces of it in the first half as well. So almost as soon as people start talking in questions, they start thinking in definitive solutions and oftentimes final solutions. Um, And so Napoleon III, for example, in the French Chamber of Deputies, uh, opening a legislative session in 1863, uh, spoke of the sugar question as demanding a final solution. And so I'd like to ask what range of possibilities for thought and action were opened up by questions in the 19th century? So we've talked about the thinking behind problem and solution. But by the time the age of questions was in full swing, there are other ways of framing things in a scientized fashion. Mathematical models for understanding society, of course, um, have their roots uh, way back, uh, perhaps in Leibniz, but at least probably even farther. Um, But uh, there's also the kind of medical-biological possibility um, and where a question can be seen as denoting not so much a problem as a malady or an illness that needs to be cured rather than a problem that needs to be solved. And so one symptom of this transformation is that questions become increasingly synonymous with illnesses or maladies. So um, in 1846 pamphlet uh, refers to the Polish question as the Polish malady. Um, And it's not just with geopolitics, so the social question, um, the scientific metaphor kind of self-consciously shifts from mathematics to biology. Um, The social question uh, uh, was no longer a problem to be solved, um, so much as an ill to be remedied. So this quote from Ernst Becher in 1868, society is sick, then comes the question regarding causes, character, and cure of the sickness, the social question. So the social question becomes defined as the cure for the malady from which uh, society suffers. Um, Similarly, uh, an English economist and reformer, J.A. Hobson, uh, in 1901, said that the science of political economy was defective for the purpose of handling the social question. A satisfactory answer to the social question cannot consist of the theoretic solution of a problem The method must be that of an organic science reorganizing organic interaction and qualitative differences, not the purely mathematical or quantitative method, which current economic science tends more and more to employ. And so you can see them shifting more to a biological uh, or a medical model for understanding what questions are. And this has some implications, which I'll return to in a bit. Um, But I'd like to speak of another pattern. And this is uh, strategies for solution. So one of the strategies that I've sort of half outlined in speaking of Dostoevsky is the strategy of aggregation. So at the very moment that questions are born, they seem to be born together, and not just simultaneously, but in relation to one another. So you see already in the 1820s and 1830s people will talk about the polish question and how it relates to the eastern question how it relates to the jewish question how it relates to the belgian question and the greek question and so they're not just born simultaneously they are born interrelated to one another in bundles and those bundles uh, don't stop uh, uh in the you know at, at their origin they, they get bigger and bigger and so by um Uh, the mid-19th century, you have already kind of umbrella categories of questions, like the European question, which encompasses within it a whole slew of other questions, um, small geopolitical questions, and then you have um, something like the social question, which encompasses within it things like the worker question, the agrarian question, the woman question, all come under this big umbrella of the social question, or the nationalities question, into which any number of nationality questions can uh, be fit and so um, there is this tendency to aggregate and to create umbrella questions. Um, so in terms of, uh, I just want to give one example from this, uh, the worker question, uh, Joseph Biederlack writes in 1895, the worker question is just a part, and the worker's pay question is even just a small part of the social question, which encompasses within itself the most important questions of ethics, philosophy, of law, and statecraft. So you can see here again this other tendency that was already in Dostoevsky, this absolutely megalomaniacal tendency to see everything as encompassed in a single question, and to think your way to an umbrella question that will encompass as much uh, as possible. So one thing that comes with this is um, simultaneously, and perhaps uh, even prior, is that, um, so it's not just megalomania in terms of bundling them together, but there's a sense that everything is interrelated, and so you can't solve a question on its own terms, you have to combine them to solve them. So uh, you can't think of just solving the Polish question or just the Eastern question or just the Jewish question. You somehow have to think of solving them all because they're so interrelated. And so the megalomania doesn't just stick to the formulation, it moves to the solution. So the solution becomes megalomaniacal as well. So a small local fix isn't going to cut it. Instead, you have to do something on a massive social and geopolitical scale. Um, And so this combined to solve um, is uh, part of this uh, this movement towards uh, aggregation that inheres in questions. And uh, the agglomeration of questions was also a way, um, and I talked about formulation as being important, uh, such that the the proposed solutions could be elaborated through a relationship between questions. So the way a question was formulated also tells you something about how the person formulating it thought it should be solved. So if they thought that the Polish question was like the Belgian question and connected to it, or like the Greek question, then you can bet they believed that the Polish question had to be solved with Polish independence because the Belgian question was solved that way, the Greek question was solved that way. So the bundling was also a way to uh, provide a solution in a subtle manner oh, look, they're all related, and oh, if those were solved that way, this one has to be too. So it's a querist strategy, but it also produces, a, it reinforces this idea that everything is interrelated, um, and that you, in order to solve one, you have to solve them all, and you have to solve them all more or less in the same way. Um, so this idea that to formulate was to solve was a very powerful notion. Uh, Karl Marx... Uh, Uh, In 1843, he responded to the first German text and one of the first in any language to address the Jewish question, uh, an article by the German theologian Bruno Bauer. And uh, in his famous response to Bauer's piece, he wrote um, that the formulation of a question is its uh, solution. And um, some went even farther. The German political scientist Adolf Grabowski Uh, reiterated how defining a question was to propose a solution in his book on the Polish question in 1916. He said, once the problems are comprehensively and clearly grasped, they will steer themselves toward solution. Language thinks in a very subtle manner here. It calls the correct answer to a question a solution. The unraveling is thus at once the achievement, and hence language views the amalgamation of successful unraveling toward a beneficial result as a completely natural achievement. And so you can see the querists are naturalizing uh, what they posit as necessary solutions, that it's almost there are no actors here, that language kind of takes over and uh, moves you towards the goal of solution. So the very formulation, the X question, is not a, a harmless one. That it's not assumed to be a harmless one. It's assumed to have a certain kind of power in and of itself to formulate, is, uh, to solve. And one of the, uh, what there's a bit, uh, the strongest evidence for this is perhaps those who argue throughout the 19th century things like, wait a minute, there is no Jewish question, there is no woman question, there is no Eastern question, and who try to uh, make the claim that anyone who's using this formulation. Is they have a political agenda with a particular goal in mind and that they should be uh, dealt with uh, with caution uh, because they're trying to stealth that agenda under the radar so all of those people who are claiming there is no question are participating in this uh, discussion about what it is that language can do uh, in terms of opening or closing the realm of possibilities both geo- geopolitically and socially so um, Uh, a similar effect happens um, when you see the question not just to formulate is to solve but that the question itself becomes uh, the solution it's elevated to that uh, status so the russian naturalist and philosopher nikolai danilevsky in his work russia and europe from 1869 wrote if we look in Russian life, we quickly see that it's not in complete health. The curative events from which we will learn our saving lessons have already appeared on the horizon of history. They are called the Eastern question. So that very irritant becomes the cure. Uh, It's no longer the thing that needs to be fixed. It is the thing that will take you towards uh, the cure. And so you can see this absolute reversal in the late 19th century, uh, and the kind of inexorability with which it's starting Uh, to function. So uh, in 1923, the Austrian philosopher and geopolitician Richard Kudenhof-Kalergi published a book entitled Pan Europe, in which he posed what he called the European question, which he formulated as follows. Can Europe, so long as its political and economic disunion lasts, maintain its peace and independence with respect to the growing world powers, or is it bound in order to preserve its existence to organize itself into a federal union. And as so many others in the 19th century before him, Kudenhof-Kalergi argued that, to put the question is to answer it, and the answer was that a federal union of European states was an absolute necessity. So here we have arrived at Kudenhof-Kalergi and the idea of European federation. And this is not a coincidence either, because we've just been talking about the phenomenon of aggregate to solve combine to solve. And so this produces a couple of very common solutions. One common solution, what better way to combine to solve than federation? So federation is a very common uh, solution to the various questions of the 19th century. And this is partly because once you've got this megalomaniacal turn towards aggregating questions, the small fix doesn't work. A major social and geopolitical overall has to take place a federation uh, is a big solution um, it eliminates boundaries between hitherto four uh, neatly contained uh, states and so it's uh it's thinking in in big terms about the solution uh to questions after the questions themselves have become very big so in a pamphlet from 1840 the frenchman francois dumont proposed just such a solution, a solution to the eastern question He said the present condition of europe in a political as well as in a social sense is rotten at its core and is based on a false premise it lacks balance and thus cannot endure europe must be reconstituted then and only then will the peace of europe and the world be assured however to arrive at this regeneration only two means present themselves a general war and a war of principle or what would be better for everyone a good-natured and rational alliance So the good-natured and rational alliance is the federative-like solution. Uh, The other option is war, and here you can see Dumont uh, posing that as a threat. So if you don't do the rational alliance, you're going to get the war. There are only two ways to go about this, uh, and it has to be done. So it's inexorable, it's going to take place, and there are these two options. But in this threat is also, he says, a possibility. That you can also achieve it by having a war and so uh, one of the other fascinating features of uh, the way that questions get combined to solve is that the possibility of a general wa- war surfaces very regularly in these texts so the perceived need for one uh, came up the same year in a text uh, with a polish exile named leopold Sawaszkiewicz who wrote of the Polish question, all the leading political events of Europe are more or less involved in the Eastern question. All Eastern commotions have become of vital importance to the Western nations, and that the present one should be made a question of a general war. So here you see something more ambiguous. You see someone talking about how everything is combined in the Eastern (coughs) question, it's all there, but, and then this should become a matter of a general war where the general war is not a threat, It's what needs to happen. It's the thing that uh, comes next once you've defined questions in this way. Um, And uh, if you want to know how uh, many Poles in particular felt about the possibility um, uh, uh, of uh, of a general war, uh, we have the Polish romantic poet, Adam Mickiewicz, who put forward a similar position to Sawashkiewicz's in 1849. He said, the Eastern question arises with a somber grandeur. A general war can result from it. And if we look at his other works, especially a poem that he wrote in 1832, following the failure of the November uprising against Tsarist Russia, he wrote, for a universal war for the freedom of peoples, we beseech thee, O Lord. So this goes from war as threat to war as opportunity. This general war, this universal war, is the big chance. And so this aggregate to solve offers not only the threat, but the promise of war, and that war can offer this possibility of the grand reset of social and geopolitical relations that's required in order to address all of these questions in aggregate. So um, we have a couple of um, instances. So one of them is uh, the Crimean War. A lot of people expected that the Crimean War was going to be this general war. Mitzkevich was uh, one of them, and he actually died in Istanbul on his way trying to fight with the Ottomans against Tsarist uh, Russia in 1855. Um, but he wasn't the only one who saw it uh, as this, um, this possibility. So an 1855 pamphlet by a German statesman on the Polish question viewed from the German perspective, declared that this colossal struggle cannot be ended other than by a complete change in the alliances of all states, as well as their boundaries. So there had to be this big uh, reset, and that this war was the one uh, to bring it. Um, Needless to say, uh, the Crimean War didn't answer to many of the, the hopes that many had packed into it. Um, but federation continued to be uh, a thread during that period. In 1863, alias Regno published a pamphlet in Paris whose title ran the European Question, inappropriately called the Polish Question, in which he proposed a federal Europe, strong, compact, of unified sentiments, morals, and intellectual knowledge as a solution, and he continued... Indeed, for any question, there is a solution at the ready. Federalism answers everything because it simplifies everything. The federal principle should be the new international law of Europe. So this idea that everything is simplified by aggregation, you bring it all under uh, under one umbrella, and then it's simplified to the extent that you can solve it with a single stroke. There's one easy, simple solution, and that's uh, federation. So the ideal of federation found its way into discussions of the social question as well, because I'm getting really geopolitical here, um, or the social question. And so uh, in the words of Russian anarchist Mikhail Bakunin, he said, the social question can be resolved only by abolishing state boundaries. So federation also solved the social question. Kudnhov-Kalergi himself wrote that the separation between nation and state that would accompany the creation of pan-Europe, would everywhere facilitate economic recovery, as well as the solution of the social question. It will rid Europe's political atmosphere of its poisonous elements and prepare it for the pan-European solution. Um, And so the social question, too, was seen, uh, this big umbrella of the social, was seen to be solved by the possibility of uh, federation. So the belief that it was possible to aggregate questions and thereby reduce them to a common denominator and solve them in a stroke also had an ancillary effect uh, which was that uh, an assumption that this had to be done not by one or the other state but by some kind of concerted action because if you were going to do this big thing everybody more or less had to be involved and so um, this uh, this notion that a lot of states had to sort of cooperate to bring about this, uh, uh, this big solution to the big umbrella question uh, comes up in a text by Leopold uh, von Ranke, the famous German Ur historian, who saw a unanimous accord emerge around the interactions of Europe's powers with respect to the Eastern question. And in his 1879 work, Serbia and Turkey in the 19th century, he wrote about the near miss of a major European conflagration around the acute crisis in the Ottoman Empire in the 1830s. He wrote, a drama without equal, these powers equipped for war as never before, how they move against one another, engage in disputes, join alliances and counter-alliances, put an end to a distant world's questions at the least irritation, and thereby avoid entering into open battle with one another, and not just one or the other power, but the whole of Europe. And so the concerted action around questions was also part of uh, the means of their solution, in his view. And Europe's own unity was therefore being discussed uh, as uh, Europe's combined addressing of big questions, Um, such that in 1907, the British liberal statesman Noel Buxton wrote of the Macedonian question that Macedonia raises thoughts of a nobler cause than the relief of suffering alone for it recalls no less a matter than that of reviving once more the comity of nations. In spite of all the rivalries aroused, Macedonia compels the powers to work together, and to peoples whose officers cooperate in the same police force, the thought of war seems increasingly absurd. The very perplexities of the task may be but the birth throes of a new unity. Uh, that, Therefore, working together on questions was going to be the way that they were all solved, through European unity. Um, So there's another feature of questions uh, as we're talking about peculiarities, and that was the way that they were assumed to bind East and West together, um, and uh, to bind the geopolitics of the East to the social politics of the West. So uh, the Crimean War, we've already talked about its importance for the combined to solve feature, but it's important also for this kind of east west function as well. So, uh, in f- 1853, with the Crimean War on the near horizon, uh, the newly uh, appointed Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, George Villiers, the fourth Earl of Clarendon, uh, sent a dispatch to the British minister to Russia. And in it, he sought to assure the Russian leadership that Britain had no hostile intentions. And he wrote, The main object of Her Majesty's government, that to which their efforts have been and always will be directed, is the preservation of peace, and they desire to uphold the Turkish Empire from their conviction that no great question can be agitated in the East without becoming a source of discord in the West, and that every great question in the West will assume a revolutionary character and embrace a revision of the entire social system for which the continental governments are certainly in no state of preparation. This is a very peculiar thing to say, because basically it implies that if you change a border in the East, you can set off a social revolution in the West. So this might be uh, Clarendon off on uh, a little flight of fancy, and yet Clarendon's dispatch found its way into the hands of Karl Marx, who wrote about it in 1854. And he quotes uh, Clarendon, Her Majesty's government desires to uphold the Turkish Empire, not from any Eastern consideration at all, but from their conviction that no great question can be agitated in the East without becoming a source of discord in the West. The brave Earl goes further. Why does he fear the dissolution and dismemberment of the Turkish Empire? Uh, There is this delicate circumstance connected with it. Every great question in the West will assume a revolutionary character and embrace a revision of the entire social system. Karl Marx really likes this. (laughs) So Clarendon is terrified of the possibility. Marx is thrilled by the possibility. What fascinates me is they both absolutely agree that this is a real possibility, that this relationship um, exists between the East and West that connects boundaries in the East to social politics in uh, in the West. So uh, biology, and we talked about math to, to medicine before, brings this relationship between the East and West into a kind of new frame. So in 1869, uh, we start to have a, a rhetoric again of infection. In 1869, Danilevsky writes, Russian life was forcefully changed to match a foreign pattern, This illness seems most appropriately called Europeanism. And the root question is this, will this illness act more like an inoculation that puts the organism through a beneficial revolution and is shaken off without any lasting harmful effects, but giving a boost to the very foundations of national vitality? So here again you see this idea of the possibility of infection or inoculation between East and West. And this, uh, that basically, it comes to the possibility of revolution being the source of that uh, infection. And uh, also, you see, during uh, the 19th century, I'm sure you've heard of uh, the Ottoman Empire starts to be referred to as uh, the sick man of Europe. Um, the, the social question is defined as an illness, um, and uh, this idea of the sick man of Europe. Um, here he is, uh, makes the Eastern question especially rife with medicalized approaches, um, generally concentrated in the last quarter of the century. And so the belief was that the geopolitical questions could still be definitively solved or cured, but somehow the social question took a bit of a different tack. So um, uh, probably the assumption behind the sick man of Europe was that he was going to die eventually. Um, and that that was sort of a final solution to the Eastern question, and that he could be propped up for a while, but he was probably going to die. But the medicalization of the, of the social question took a very different track, and it, it became, uh, the metaphor was not one of illness, uh, but of hunger. And it took a kind of Hegelian turn, where it saw things running in cycles, that in any given period, every period would have its own social question to address, and uh, that it would have to address it on its own terms. Um, And so here you can see an example of that kind of thinking. The German theosophist Rudolf Steiner in 1919 writes, just as an organism becomes hungry sometime after being full, so does the social organism proceed from order to disorder. There can no more be a universal medicine for maintaining order in social relations than there is a food that will satisfy for all times. And his argument is basically, and he's talking about the (coughs) social question here, is that uh, the social question cannot be definitively solved. It always has to be addressed over and over again by each generation on its own terms, because it's like hunger. You're always going to have to eat after a few hours or after a few years, um, that you can't uh, assume that a final solution is possible. Um, So uh, this possibility that a final solution may never come, the question is, does that infect the geopolitical realm as well? Does it pass into understandings of the way that geopolitics work, that no problem is ever definitively solved? It's at least remotely possible, since occasionally, whenever something happens in Israel-Palestine, or in the, uh, in the east of Anatolia, or in the Levant, or during the wars of Yugoslav secession, people will invariably refer to, ah, oh, the resurgence of the eastern question, there it is again. Um, And so perhaps that idea that questions return and that they can come again sort of out of nowhere after they had presumably been solved is uh, part of this kind of infection of the understanding of the social question into the geopolitical realm. I think it's too hard to tell. But I'd like to uh, close with um, uh, World War II, as I promised that. So what is it about World War II that I see differently now after having gone through all of this? First of all, World War I. This idea of aggregate to solve and the possibility of a universal war, needless to say, this gets very ramped up before World War I, and a lot of uh, hope, concern, threat is packed into the way that questions are discussed in advance of World War I, and uh, before it starts and while it's going on, lots of people see it as this panacea solution now we can finally reset the geopolitical order now we can contemplate large alternatives to uh, the social order and if you look at what happens after world war one some questions are declared solved the eastern question in 1923 with the creation of republican turkey for example Uh, there are many who say this is off the table there is no more eastern question the polish question poland comes back onto the map it's not discussed as a question uh, this, uh, the woman question, the suffrage, uh, is during and just after the war, is spread widely throughout Europe. Uh, the worker question, uh, many declare it at least to have been solved in the state of the Soviet Union. There's a state that has uh, made an effort to uh, uh, solve, if you will, the worker question, and that uh, in the eyes of many had achieved that end. And so World War One seems to have, uh, you know, to many, to have lived up to its promise that it was going to refashion the geopolitical order, and who remained frustrated out of this. uh, There were a couple of uh, uh, malcontents, those who had been thinking about um, a a kind of cooperation between European states or federation. So Kuttenhoff-Kalergi writes Pan-Europe in 1923 after World War I really fails to draw the states uh, together. And after the catastrophe of World War I, uh, so that's one that continues into the interwar period. Um, and the Jewish question, uh, uh, very hot, if you will, in the immediate post war period. Lots of pogroms in areas of uh, Eastern Europe. It's hotly discussed around the territorial reshuffling that takes place in the wake of World War I. And there also, this is a period, the so called solution of the Eastern question or of the various nationality questions in the East of Europe produce a lot of violence during World War I with you know, the Armenian Genocide, the war that is ongoing be- uh, on the eastern frontier of Poland well into the 1920s, um, the population exchanges of Greeks uh, in the Ottoman, from the former Ottoman Empire, etc. And so um, it's not uh, a question of uh, non-violent solutions. And so the possibility of violence as a solution to questions is raised in World War I, but what I find most intriguing about World War II in light of the age of questions is that it, uh, it made me realize that what exactly the Nazis had done, and that is that they weren't concerned exclusively with the Jewish question. They were obsessed with that, obviously, but one of the things that they understood, uh, that they thought they understood, was that you had to combine questions to solve them. You had to combine the Jewish question with the Polish question, with the Transylvanian question, uh, with the Ukrainian question, and that only by opening all of these up again could you hope to solve any of them. And so this uh, bundling and combine to solve, if you look at the way that the German uh, uh, um, foreign, equivalent of the foreign ministry, I can't remember now what they're called. <laughs> it's not a foreign ministry. Um, but uh, the, the people who do foreign ministry foreign affairs they use this expression uh very regularly uh, we are going in here to address the polish question the ukrainian question the transylvanian question and so um this combined to sol- to, to solve and the possibility that war offers for its solution comes very strongly into world war Two, and that a lot of this is the legacy of the way that questions were understood in the 19th century i think and um Part of why questions disappear, in my view, not entirely and not for uh, uh, not uh, all questions disappear, but largely, as you know, we don't use that formulation anymore, is uh, the delegitimation that came together with the final solution of the Jewish question uh, around the Holocaust. Uh, and so after World War II, it's historians who start to use these uh, formulations as a way of talking about historical framings of issues and problems rather than contemporary political uh, actors who are using them to frame um, contemporary political problems Um, and so i think world war ii does end up having an epilogue role in uh, the age of questions at least uh, for the way that the nazis understood the way that questions worked namely that they worked together in aggregate and that you couldn't raise uh, one without raising the others, and that if you wanted to solve one, you had to address the others. So um, I hope this has been uh, a useful way of thinking about how thinking in questions affected um, uh, in the 19th century the realm of possibility, um, and also the ways in which certain things that we consider to adhere to a particular question things like the final solutions or federal solutions, the threat of universal war, radical reorganization of the European state and social order, uh, the relationship between the social and the geopolitical between East and West, how these understandings migrated through questions uh, into uh, various other realms. And they rode first the structures of mathematics and then uh, mathematics and economics, and later into biology and medicine. And uh, as such, I think, it really does make sense to think about the 19th century. And this is, I don't think it should be seen this way exclusively. One shouldn't always look at the 19th century uh, and into the early 20th as the age of questions. But I do think that if you do, it causes you to think a bit differently about what happened during that period and what uh, possibilities it opened up and closed down for uh, the 20th century. So I'd like to leave it at that and uh, open it up to uh, questions appropriately.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much Holly for this very rich history of Europe encapsulated in a, in a series of questions. I have lots of questions actually, but, um, uh, just while I give everyone else a chance to think, maybe I can just start with mine. I'm very interested in that shift you describe from mathematical to scientific and eventually medical um, modes of explanation and solution. I wonder whether you see an accompanying shift in your questioners, because your questioners are kind of absent, actually. You've given us this great gallery of, um, uh, of thinkers, but I wonder whether the thinkers you describe as the at the start are actually the same Kind of men as they are at the beginning, or whether that's, whether that's a partial explanation for why the the, the, um, uh, the metaphors change. But there's probably lots of other questions in the room, so I suggest st- stick your hands in the air if you have questions. There's one here already. Yeah.
2: Um, thank you. It's a brilliant um, lecture. I just wanted to hear more about the earlier part of your story, because mm-hmm. I find, it, um, I guess that relates to the question of who asks the questions but mm-hmm. also um i find it a bit surprising that it emerges um in, in the early 19th century and mm-hmm. i wanted to hear more on why why do you think it emerges then and, and not you know I, I would have expected it to emerge in the enlightenment or to be a product of the enlightenment mm-hmm. and in a way you told this story in the beginning you, you set up the, the the story in a very interesting way which is about this kind of new epistemological way of thinking by your answer that kind of question that you posed mm-hmm. was much more political mm-hmm. or geopolitical in a way of like why it happened and i wanted to hear more of why do you think there is this epistemological not just a political shift because of napoleon but also epistemological shift um in the early 19th in, in the early 19th century rather than let's say um the 18th century or the late 19th
1: century do you want to get started okay i combine to solve yeah. So um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the shift in questioners, I think um, this, is a, this is a big section of the 2B book, um, and it's fascinating. Uh, I don't know if I can do it full justice here, but the questioners do shift. So um, one is, uh, initially it's a lot of people who are uh, parliamentarians or they're diplomats. Um, and so they're talking about these questions in advance of parliamentary proceedings. And this goes to answering your question about epistemological, because it's partly by chance that this finds its way into, you know, that the formulation finds its way into the um, into common coinage. Um, I think it starts in Britain, but then it spreads to other places, at least that's as far as I can tell. And what what is British about it, as near as I can tell once again, is that... Um, a, a few ways in which parliamentary procedure functions such that uh, often things are put as questions in parliamentary forms like today we're going to talk about this or that question and then it gets short it got shorthanded as the X question mm-hmm. uh, regularly and mm-hmm. if you look at the, the the table of items to be discussed at the, con- con- uh, the Congress of Vienna in 1814 and 15 you can see you know day X you know like the the Polish question. We're going to discuss this, and so it was. Uh, it was a particularly uh, kind of um, generalized form of uh, ep- epistemological um, a- approach that was used for uh, parliamentary proceedings and uh, treaty negotiations, in my experience. And so, uh, when you have people like Malthus and others weighing in on questions. Here you can see, uh, this is an early one of the earliest I've found on the bullion question. It's from 1811. And you can see that um, it's on the cover of the pamphlet. The bullion question as such is nowhere in the pamphlet. It's just the, the framing of the, uh, the thing itself. This is also true, here you can see, uh, high price of bullion. there's one that says, oh, a plain statement of the bullion question, and others are calling it like, Review of the controversy respecting the high price of bullion. They're not calling it a bullion question, first of all. And in the text that they do, a plain statement of the bullion question, it's actually nowhere in the text itself. So as you move through the 19th century, this reverses completely. So uh, in the, uh, this is 1896. This is uh, um, Herzl's uh, The Jewish State. And if you look at the title of this, uh, it's The Jewish State, uh, attempt at a, solu- a modern solution to the Jewish question. And so the title is not the question, the title is the solution. And so you can see this inexorability functioning, you know, where the solution becomes top-loaded and the question becomes sort of ancillary. And the question appears on the first page all throughout, you know, of the of the Jewish state. Mm-hmm. The same is true of Kunhov Kalergi's Pan-Europe. It doesn't, it's not, an, uh, you know, explicitly addressing the uh, European question in the title. The, 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 the title is the solution. Pan-Europe is the way to solve. And then, uh, if you look on the first page, the European question, blah blah blah, the solution to the European question is Pan-Europe. And so the question is throughout the text, <laughs> it's not in the title. And so there's that switch. That doesn't necessarily explain the difference in who's asking, though. Um, although in, you know, in part, it does because Herzl is not a parliamentarian and he's also not um, a, uh, a diplomat, uh, and so he's indicative of something that's happened in the question realm: is that who's found it, who's, who's found their way successfully into this realm? I mean, he's basically a journalist; he's a publicist, and so this is such a heavily publicistic realm that publicists sort of take it over. There's a great line by one of the Salisbury's. Uh, it's very funny, very droll. He says something like, I'm completely convinced that this Eastern question is a fabrication of the newspapers uh, to keep up their subscriptions. <laughs> you know, that there's really nothing there at all, but it it suits the newspapers to keep saying the Eastern questions, because everyone gets all excited about it, um, and that there's really no there there, as far as this person was. And so the, 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 the publicistic realm starts to, give this a very particular momentum and they start to let people in who were not uh, previously uh, allowed or able to weigh in on questions. And so by the late 19th century, you have a shift towards kind of popular pedagogy where there are um, history or there are professors of law, of philosophy, of whatever, offering their views on X or Y question that was meant to be sort of like a course for the common man on the social question. And so it was meant to have kind of a popular pedagogical purpose, but then at the same time you have people then coming out of the audience and saying, you know, from a common worker, uh, views on the Eastern question. And so people starting to weigh in on these things, not just in the publicistic realm, but there's also, I have some evidence that people would stand up on street corners and get on a box and go on about the Eastern question and its necessary solution. So nobody with any particular credentials could enter the, Uh, the kind of public sphere in this way. Um, And it also provided a way for uh, small geopolitical actors to enter this international public sphere by using these questions as a way to raise the profile of their particular concerns. And so it's not just, uh, it doesn't just become kind of a little more equal opportunity in social terms, but also in geopolitical terms. Because all of a sudden, uh, you know, a Serb writing in French can say, my views on the Eastern question, you know, and a Pole writing in English can say, here's how you should think of uh, the, uh, you know, the Jewish question or whatever, you know, like they uh, start to weigh in on uh, on questions from uh, various geopolitical corners that had previously, hith- hithertofore not had much of a say. Um, so the questioners do actually change in that respect, and it's an important change to note. Uh, so I'm glad you. So, how do you think this international public sphere is different from the from the national ones? Oh, yes, um I would say uh, in a couple of ways. One is the international public sphere is the national public sphere is about talking about matters that can be addressed by a national government, uh, so mm, potentially should or can be addressed by a national government. The international public sphere, uh, raises matters that can be addressed by a national government but not necessarily by your own. So this this phenomenon that I've been (coughs) speaking of where uh, a Greek will make the case on how to solve the Eastern question in a French newspaper is done with the understanding that uh, a Greek, in order to um, achieve Greek independence, will have to convince France and Britain that Greek independence is a good idea in order for the Greeks to become independent. And so uh, there's actually practical reasons why they think this is the case, and then there are other reasons why they think that publishing a pamphlet would make any difference at all, <laughs> and that is because um, in, the, in the, up until about the 1850s there's a great deal of hope Uh, among these people that mass politics, the expansion of the franchise, works for them. And here I'm talking about geopolitically. Of course this is true on the social level and domestic politics as well. Expansion of franchises is seen as a a possibility for people within national politics, but it's also seen as a possibility for people living in other countries, because they think that if you change public opinion in a state to think in your way, that that would somehow have an effect on the way that the government votes. And so that if everybody thinks that Poland should become independent uh, in your state, and the government uh, doesn't do anything about Polish independence, the, the, the thinking was that they would be acting in bad faith, they would get in trouble, they would never do that in a state that depends in some respects on public opinion. So you, if you watch uh, like the Poles, the Serbs, um, the Greeks, uh, these other peoples who are you know, sort of looking for some kind of recognition through questions, um, you can see them... Uh, pushing things through the publicistic cyst- realm, not only to convince parliamentarians, but to convince the general public, because they think that will work. The polls uh, get way more cynical towards the, <laughs> the 1860s about that possibility, and they sort of give up on public opinion. But their strategy then in the questioning realm shifts uh, considerably, and but it, it stays international. But they no longer think that, you know, if you convince public opinion that, that that's that's your mm-hmm. ticket in um, but yeah so, so, so i've seen david and here and there should we have the th-
0: uh, round of 3 mm. yeah
3: that's thank you very much uh-huh. It wasn't an Eastern question, though, it was just a way of talking about it. it was a way of talking about something, mm-hmm. to, uh, to the, to the caricature of what you mm-hmm. said. And I just want to sort of try and push back against that yeah. a little bit, right. um, um, sort of in a microwave and a big way. In mm-hmm. a microwave, if your argument, it, 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 your argument would expect me to find mm-hmm. a lot of talk in early 19th century Britain about the Jewish question. Mm Because questions arose, as you said, in in of parliamentary talk in in (coughs) in 19th century Britain, and the question of of Jewish emancipation was on the table, but Mm -hmm. as I recall, people didn't talk about the Jewish question in Mm -hmm. early 19th century Britain, they spoke about removing political disabilities from the Jews and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So that makes me think, well, why not? perhaps, because the issue didn't resonate. Mm-hmm. So the actual issue was important. Mm-hmm. If we go to the very end of your story and, and the fascinating things you said about the ways in which um, uh, the Holocaust made questions disreputable um, and, and, above all, made final solutions
2: mm-hmm.
3: disreputable, I mean, I, I can absolutely see it made final <laughs> Uh, solutions; it is reputable. And I suppose I wonder whether the political settlement, <laughs> and whether another story one could tell, is that the the settlement at the end of the Second World War resolved, in a way, internationally and nationally, the questions which were raised by the French Revolutions and the Napoleonic Wars. And that's why questions huh. have disappeared. So I suppose I wonder whether there isn't, isn't also a political dimension to the mm-hmm.
1: story. OK, good.
0: Should we take a couple more? There's quite yeah, a yes. lot to be getting mm-hmm. into. But sure. OK, yeah. one question here and one to the back.
4: Great, thank you, Holly. I really enjoyed that. Um, I was interested in, I really love the way you set it up as a kind of anatomy of discourse. Here are all these features we can see uh, in this discourse, especially this idea of a rolling reformation of the problem. <laughs> uh, and the, way the funds together, and so on, and you give us its variation over time, but not over place. So <coughs> you seem to be citing people from the whole way across uh, the continent, and I'm intrigued whether you really think this is a truly pan-cultural or you know cross-cultural mm-hmm. phenomenon that mm-hmm. doesn't appear differently, you know, as, as a particular epistemological formation, whether you're writing in Poland or whether you're writing in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the the, the correlate of that question is, is is that for that to make sense. Really have to have a very thick notion of this international public sphere that you've been discussing as a really like a, 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 a meaningful thing, like a really thick context that is somehow uh, common to, to all these places. So in some ways, what you're doing is actually giving us history of this international public sphere in reverse. Like that is is mm-hmm. the the invisible thing or the, the, the necessary um, prerequisite for, for all that you're doing. And that's that's you know very interesting. But I wonder then what something causal about that or whether there's an interesting move where one is causing the other like it's a reversible story so you know that international public sphere is producing these questions but actually it's these questions that are also producing that international public sphere because they are themselves encouraging people to think in <laughs> this interrelated geopolitical uh way so the, the kind of <coughs> cause of those two factors um seems to me to be perhaps something that would be compelling to bring out further um but also just as another footnote i mean perhaps because the, the way you set it up um you know i felt like you know we were just hearing I was thinking for the Holocaust all the way along. Like <laughs> this genealogy of the Holocaust. Uh, like it seems like almost every point you made it's like, oh yep, the inevitability, you know, the, the inexorable problem like, you know, something that has this idea that you know problems happen, that, that this biological aspect, that uh, you know, it's gonna be remain through war, that, that and I, I wondered I, I kind of wanted to break out of that and I just be you a comment to myself <coughs> if you will. Like could you tell this story differently that didn't end up there and mm-hmm. would it look different?
0: Right. Mm-hmm. That's already a lot. One more. <laughs>
5: For an excellent talk, really. Um, might I just put things on there that kind of now we've been talking about epistemology sure, but I think that there might be some value in thinking about questions as ontology, yeah, if you will, in the sense that um out the of things is really powerful to these things and um, to people at the time. and <laughs> when you hear that. Mm-hmm. have left its their mark on the language in in by the very fact that the noun that defines thing colloquially remaining in this case in yeah, yeah. the state. So in a certain sense, um, all of this um, starts popping up at, from what I find toward the end of the nineteenth century as the sort of thing that informs sociologists, historians, thinking in, in precisely in the way that this defines disciplinary thought as a word. How have this out thereness of the social question that requires specific Questions my, my, my notes aside, my uh, comments aside, to what extent would you say that yes, questions really do play a part in shaping disciplinary epistemological discourse in the 19th century and thereafter? Thanks so much.
1: Great. Right. The I, answer. I have to. Yeah. <laughs> 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 the, the, this is an excellent point. Thank you so much. Uh, the ontology, I'll go backwards. So. Um, I think ontology is important for two reasons, and I like the reason that you outlined, uh, especially because it allows me to talk about a very peculiar feature of questions, which is the way that word leaks into a lot of Eastern European languages as the, you know, like it comes purely from this formulation. So in the case of Romanian and Polish, that use of the word kestia or kwestia is from the age of questions itself. And so, you know, it it, this formulation is unthinkable in the language without having the age of questions already begun. So there is a kind of, and this goes a bit to Natasha's question, you know, like chicken, egg, chicken, egg. <laughs> I find uh, it more thrilling than annoying that I can't find which is the chicken and which is the egg because I like the, you know, the, the mutual exacerbation <laughs> that occurs in the process of uh, enumerating questions and then giving them a life of their own. So you know, one feature to explain specifically what I mean is uh, the feature of questions that is backdating. So at the very moment that they're born, they backdate themselves, oftentimes by a few decades, but sometimes by centuries, sometimes by millennia. So you know, the first uh, mentions that I see of the Polish question or the Eastern question say, "Oh, it's when the Turks came to Europe," or the Jewish question, "It's when Moses fled Egypt." You know? <laughs> um, and so uh, this idea, this notion of backdating makes them seem older and have you know as having had having been irritants for much longer than the, the the particular irritating formulation that they're given at the time and so they're always trying to precede themselves in their own mission and i love this you know i love okay it's nasty but uh, <laughs> i i'm intrigued by this uh, feature of them that they're they're they are they create their own problem and they exacerbate it per- perpetually um, I think uh, when you're talking about over, uh, over time versus over place, oh, another aspect on the ontology that I find interesting, I'm just going to touch on this a little tiny bit, and that is that sometimes y- you'll notice that X can be a noun or an adjective. So when X is a noun, the woman question, uh, for example, or um, in German, Judenfrage is a noun. Juden is a Jew question, if you will. Uh, it's not the Jewish question. And so um, some uh, you know, people who deny the existence of questions, and you know, uh, Christopher Hitchens actually made some comment about this in relation to the Irish question, when he said that you know, at the moment that you formulate a particular group of people as a problem, you're already heading towards trouble. Like you've created you know, an ontological category for a, pers- uh, for a group of people that then problematizes them as a group, and this, you know, uh, it's only a matter of hop, skip, jump before you get to final solution. That having been said, I agree with you on the matter of you know, not front-loading the final solution. And in the book, it's not going to be front-loaded. I've experimented with it in a couple of talks because I think that gives people a sense of what the stakes are <laughs> in it, potentially. Um, and I think the stakes are pretty high, but I don't think that they're the same as what you get if you just look at World War II. And so um, I'm not going to write the book. By it, it was my original title was going to be Loaded Questions, Final Solution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very World War II, and now it's just the Age of Questions. Mm-hmm. And it's because I think it, it does the, it does the whole uh, process a disservice, and it makes it. You know, I don't think necessarily the Age of Questions is a bundle of evil. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff in it that was really, you know, like. A well-intentioned, and B didn't. You know the 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 final solution of the oyster question. Really, you know, (laughs) I'm okay with it. (laughs) You know, uh, it doesn't upset me on a daily basis, and so um, I don't think that everything that uh, happened in the age of questions was uh, heading in a you know a bad direction. But when when I speak of you know like aggregation to solve what I, I think that what fascinates me about that is that these two megalomaniacal solutions that emerge seem in the minds of most to be a- opposites universal war Federation I mean we're accustomed to seeing these you know there are the peaceniks who want the Federation and then there are the people who want the Hawks who want the war And as a matter of fact these are simultaneously thinkable as simultaneous solutions to the same problem and that's what I want to make graspable. not that you know the European Union is is invariably, you know, the Holocaust. <laughs> you know it's, uh, that's not it. It's uh, the fascination for me is that you know that people at the time could hold two seeming opposites in their minds simultaneously and not consider them to be contradictory. And how that was possible is through this formulation. So that's what intrigues me on that point. Um, on the issue of overtime versus over place, <laughs> I thought about this a lot, and actually, The book has uh, an odd structure because of it. So, uh, the first part, there are two parts, is the case for why it's worthwhile to consider questions in aggregate. And some of what you've heard today appears in that, although this is sort of like a little part of what appears in that. So, why should we think about the age of questions? Why bother? You know, like, how can we possibly get our minds around this? And the second part is four chapters of different sorts, which is what happens if you look at, if you tweak the, you know, the if you hold something constant and you still consider the rest of it in aggregate so what if you hold or what if you consider the issue of time in questions so questions have periodicities um, and they also have contextual periodicities so the Polish question comes and goes it falls asleep it disappears and then it's back <laughs> and it does this in Poland in one way it does it in Germany in another way it does it in France in another way so they all have their waves that are sort of and so it's not that everything is sort of you know it's all on, all the time. Some of the periodicity is super predictable. 1863, a lot of people are talking about the Polish question. 1848, you know, 1831, you know, like you can say 1916, yes, (laughs) the Polish question is a big deal. So, uh, and some of that periodicity is therefore predictable, but some of it, you know, is sort of out of phase or it's interestingly uh, intriguing. So time is one that I sort of look at specifically. Another is place, so I have a whole chapter where I consider one National context and see what the whole age of questions looks like from that national context And I wasn't quite sure how that would work out, but the results have just kind of like weirded me out in a big way Uh, I chose Hungary because it was part of an empire, but it was an aspiring nation-state and because let's face it I'm probably the only one who would choose Hungary (laughs) Um, and so other people if they're interested could you know do other contexts and I think they would be uh, you know like you could the results would be equally rich but I found through the Hungarian case so many odd uh, odd things that it's still worthwhile to consider them in aggregate for it but for example if you look at the social question as it comes into Hungary it skips the whole social democratic side and it goes right to reaction (laughs) there is no social democratic discussion of the social question it's always a response to somebody in another country Having that position and then an argument against that position. A lot of the woman question works that way in Hungary too, and so it enters uh, the Hungarian context, you know, with a very different valence. Um, so that's uh, so place is one question. So I, I try to consider: is there anything like if you look from a standpoint of a particular question on the age of questions? Is there anything really unique about individual questions? And the big question there for me is like um, how. Uh, how specific are a lot of things that we consider to be specific to the Jewish question? How specific really are they? Um, so the formulation of the final solution, this idea of aggregate solved, <coughs> but also the bi- the question that I consider there most heftily is the social question, because that's the one that gets weird with the f- with the hunger, um, and that's what I find so interesting about it is that it really does take a different track, and it was worth doing that little study of the social question to see it going off in that direction. And uh, so the social question, and then the particular person. So what happens uh, w- if you look at a person who is trying to you know, like address a number of questions simultaneously? And that chapter is on Marx, because he's the one that I found who addressed the most questions, the most consistently over the course of the 19th century, and to whom many people responded. And so you can kind of get him. So uh, the second part of the book is like trying to deal with particularities within this realm to you know, ameliorate a bit of that problem of context Um, The question about epistemology and rhetoric is a good one, Um, uh, and I think I've answered some of it in terms of the periodic uh, nature that you just talked about, but it's not actually the case that the Jewish question was not discussed as such in Britain. Uh, As a matter of fact, the earliest mention I've seen of the Jewish question is in Britain from 1828 or 1829. And it was in a debating club where the the theme for the discussion of the debating club was the jewish question and then in the press in britain there were also people writing in uh with their views on the jewish question and uh one newspaper i can't remember which it was now i have it here uh, said um for those of you who wrote in on the jewish question we can't possibly publish all of your letters because it's too much you know (laughs) (laughs) and so it was being discussed quad jewish question Um, But I do think that there's a a point to be made, Um, I I, I don't think, uh, first of all, not everything that that somebody might call the Jewish question, or the Eastern question, or the Polish question, gets addressed under that title. So somebody might perfectly well write a text about why Poland should be independent without using the phrase the Polish question, or why the Jews should be emancipated without using the phrase the Jewish question. And so it's a very fickle formulation, and that's why I don't call it a discourse, because it's it's not, it's like, it's not strong enough to be a begriff, it's way stronger than a, uh, you know, like, than a discourse, but it's much more uh, episodic, it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't consistently track, and this makes it really frustrating, because if you're looking at, and this is why nobody caught the backdating before, because um, you know, it sort of is believable if you think that a person's definition of a question can be fixed, then you think that, oh, if it's about emancipation, I guess that has been discussed in the French Revolution, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, yeah, if you define it like that, sure. <laughs> and you can go a with that thinking, and I think a lot of historians have rightfully gone aways with that thinking, because otherwise you leave a whole bunch out. And I don't think, you know, I don't want to wipe away that thinking at all I want to offer like what happens if you think this way (laughs) you know if you look at it for and I I don't mean this to be a replacement for that other way of thinking or a replacement for you know like an idea that politics on the ground define everything uh, because I you know I sort of believe that they do you know (laughs) on my better days (laughs) but I also think that there's something weird happening with this formulation and that it's weird enough to warrant one book (laughs) Let's say that will you know that kind of slants the way that uh, we think about these things, and maybe turns us more towards thinking about like they themselves were acknowledging the power of language, and that's freaky to me that they are thinking that language is sweeping them along, that they don't really have a choice in this, and that uh, that they're sort of using this uh, as you know oftentimes, and I frame it as sometimes a political excuse, like it's their politics that causes them. To use this formulation because it works, <laughs> it, or it seems to work, to get their desired ends. And so this is not politics-free; it's politics at a different, r- r- in a different realm, I would say, or in a different key. Politics are being used in the, within this formulation to try to gain legitimacy uh, for the the way it functions. Um, but politics, uh, I would say, by no means is irrelevant. Oh, about the post-war order. A um, couple of things. One is, I think, you're right to an extent. On the other hand, and here I have to argue a bit against myself to make this claim, is that (laughs) questions don't really go away. And the ones, uh, for the Jewish question, some people say explicitly. You know, let's face it, this formulation got us into trouble. We shouldn't be using it. So, you know, like Ishtvan Bibó, who writes a long text on the Jewish question after World War II, says that explicitly. Um, and I think Jean-Paul Sartre, in his long treatise on the Jewish question, also says something like that. If you're if you're going if you're using this, you know, maybe maybe it's trouble. And so they're thinking in these terms. The other thing is that some question, the European question, is like <laughs> still there, you know. And the German question in the 1980s, like it was all over. And uh, if you look recently, the Scottish question, the Ukrainian question, I mean, people. It periodically resurfaces. It hasn't categorically gone away. And this is something I don't quite know what to do with. Um, I've sort of made a stab at writing on it just for essayistic purposes, but I don't really know what it means. I don't necessarily think it means we're entering a new age of questions, (laughs) but it's a bit peculiar that it keeps, you know, that it has this kind of fumbling, continued existence, episodic, and then it kind of sputters out again and dies. I think that my explanation of World War II and the Holocaust, sort of neatly nipping it in the bud, is too neat. That's not exactly what happens. But I don't really know what happens. (laughs) And so, or I haven't found uh, an explanation to my satisfaction yet, so if anyone has any ideas, you should write to me. Um, I'm not going to write about that part in the book, because it's too far out of my realm, unless you come up with an answer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But uh, I think you're right, the way I've framed it here, it's a little too pat, and I wouldn't go so far in print. Mm
0: Holly, thank you very, very much. Um, I'm looking forward to to the book coming out, and I'm very grateful that you made the center real where we can continue to debate these things. And now I think it's time for us to uh, thank our speaker before we go over to some wine. So thank you, Holly.